They say pedestrians have the right of way. But what's right anyway? Wandering down the walkway of life, rules on the road seem optional today. No shortage of decision to make. Turn left, turn right, speak up, stay quiet. Hold up, wait. But the choice is mine. Money, power, respect, gonna get what I want. No stop sign. Some have a well-crafted out plan, all mapped out. Coordinates locked into the GPS, just a straight shot. Some like the free flow, you know, live carefree. Until life pulls out in front of them. No sick, without warning. From the blind spots, we're left stumped, we're left confused. This is concerning. What is this? Do you even see me? Before there's a where, what, or when, we must start in a place to begin. Who are you? The story is told in Holland in the early days of World War II that a group of Christians were uncertain of how to respond to Nazi Germany invading their country. Some advocated joining with the Germans. Others said the Germans were to be resisted at all costs. And yet others said that this would just be something that should be waited out. So uncertain of what to do, a group of believers sought the wisdom of an old missionary by the name of Heydrich Kramer. And they went to Kramer and said, what do we do? And as the story goes, Kramer told them, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but instead, I'm going to tell you who you are, and then you'll know what to do. And with that, he took his Bible, opened it up to 1 Peter, and he began to read. Now, we're in a very different situation than those Christians in Holland so many generations ago, but we too are wondering that same question, what should we do? Because we're faced with all sorts of uncertainty these days. We're in the midst of a global pandemic, and the virus is for real, but so are the economic consequences of the shutdowns that we've endured, let alone the mental health toll that this takes on people. And then we have come face to face yet again, even in our own communities, with the racial injustice that's in our society. And as believers, we can't turn a blind eye to this, but many are asking, what do we do? about this. Or maybe for you it's more specific. Maybe you've recently lost your job and you're wondering, what do I do? Or there's a relationship in your life and it's not going well and you're wondering, what should I do? And that question, what should I do, is actually a great question. In fact, it's a question that we love to ask, but when we ask it, we're tempted to jump into solutions. And that's a temptation that we have to avoid. Because the better question, the deeper question that we need to answer before we can answer what should we do is this question, who am I? And the simple truth is once we know who we are, then we know what to do. And that is the premise of this entire series. So welcome to our brand new series. It is, Who Are You? And we are going to explore together how knowing who we are will change what we do. And over the next four weeks, here's what we're going to experience together. We're going to learn who we are first by believing who we are, then by becoming who we are, then expressing who we are, and finally explaining who we are. In other words, we're going to be who we are. 
And just like those Christians in Holland so many years ago looked to the book of 1 Peter to help them understand who they are, so we too are going to explore that book together. So if you have a Bible, either on our church online platform or an electronic device that you brought with you, or if you're at home and you have a Bible, would you take it out and open it up to the little letter in the back of the New Testament called 1 Peter? And we're going to begin in chapter 1, verse 3. It is right away that the Apostle Peter, writing this letter, tells us and the, and the recipients of this letter who they are and who we are. He says this, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth, that's the key phrase, into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So Peter is telling us that the most defining characteristic about you and me, if we have accepted Jesus, if we've put our faith and our trust in him, the most defining characteristic about us is that we have been born again. Now, if you've been around church for a while, maybe you've heard that phrase. Maybe you call yourself a born-again Christian, or maybe you're hearing that phrase for the very first time. But so often, when we hear the phrase born again, we don't fully understand what it means. And because we don't fully understand what it means, we're not sure who we are. And when we're not sure who we are, we don't always know what to do. So what does it mean to be born again? Well, when you're born, there's a couple things that happen to you. The first thing is that you are born into a family. You didn't choose it. You didn't get a vote in it. No one asked you. You just inherited the family that you were given. And there are many traits from your biological mother and father and from their families that you just inherited. Maybe it's how tall you are or uh, what the, the, the color of your eyes might be. For me, I inherited a wonderful head of hair from somebody in my family. Thank you so much for my ancestors. But some of you also inherited not just some of those traits. Some of you were born into a family where you inherited some financial resources. And what Peter is telling us is we too have been born again into an incredibly rich inheritance. He says this in verse 4. He says that, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. That is good news. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. And it's right here that I think oftentimes we misunderstand fully what it means to be born again. Because we look at what Peter is saying and we see that we've been given new birth into an inheritance that's kept in heaven for you and for me. And so often Christians can have this view of being born again that is just limited to heaven. And the danger with that is then we can then hold kind of what I call a voucher view of our faith. It's almost as if when we're born again, we're given this voucher that's redeemable upon death that will gain us access to heaven. And that's really what it means to be born again. And while that is true, it's not fully true. There's so much more to being born again than just that. So what is it? Well, the second thing that happens when you're born is you're born into a name. You were given a name. And names are important because names confer a sense of identity. Names describe things. Names define what they are, what they aren't. Names tell us whose we are and who we are. And when you were born again, if you have said yes to Jesus, did you know that you were given a new name? Jesus gave you a new name. 
In fact, God is in the business of giving new names. He's done it all throughout Scripture. In fact, Jesus gave the author of this letter that we're reading, Peter, a brand new name the very first time he met him. Here's how the story happened. Peter had a brother by the name of Andrew. And Andrew was a follower of a prophet named John the Baptist. And one day, John the Baptist told his followers, don't follow me, you need to be following Jesus. And so Andrew did. And after following Jesus and spending time with him, he had an immediate reaction to go find his brother. Uh, John records this for us in his gospel. Here are his words. Speaking about Andrew, it says, the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. Isn't that incredible? That the first thing that Andrew did was have to go bring somebody else to Jesus. What a great description of what it means to follow Jesus. He says he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him, Simon, and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. Now, Cephas is an Aramaic word, and it's the Aramaic word for rock or stone. And the translation of that into Greek is the word Peter. But Peter and Cephas were not first names at that point in time. They weren't given names. In fact, that term is an inanimate object. So to understand kind of what's happening here, it, it's, it would be like this. It would be like the very first time you meet Jesus. Jesus looks at you and says, your name is now going to be concrete. I mean, it's just, it, it's kind of awkward. And anybody who was standing around who knew Simon that heard Jesus say that you're now going to be called the rock or stone would have been like, wait a minute. I mean, if we're giving new names to Simon, let's give him a name that's a little more descriptive who this guy is, right? Maybe, maybe sand, because this guy's pretty unstable. Or, or maybe hot air, because he can't ever quite seem to say the right things. But when Jesus gives you a new name, it sticks. And it did for Peter. In fact, it's, it's not long later that Peter and the rest of the disciples are with Jesus and they have one of the most defining moments of their life. Matthew records for us what happened in chapter 16 of his gospel. It, he writes, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. You can almost see Jesus kind of leaning in who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And here it is. He says, and I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And when he says on this rock, he means the proclamation that Jesus is the Messiah, but also he's referencing Peter himself and the leadership role that Peter is going to play in the church. But that rock, Peter, had some cracks in its foundation. See, Peter knew himself, and Peter knew that he really wasn't that unmovable stone. He really wasn't that rock. But he wanted to convince everybody that he was, and especially 
Jesus. And so we see throughout the rest of the Gospels, Peter trying so hard to prove to Jesus and everybody else, even himself, that he is the rock. And so you see these examples of Peter getting it right. And then you see examples of Peter getting it wrong. And he gets it right again, and then he gets it way wrong. And one of the best examples of that is what happened on the night that Jesus was betrayed. He was having dinner with his followers. Peter was there. The rest of the disciples were there. And Jesus told them, he said, you're all going to desert me. And Peter, trying to prove that he's going to be the rock, says to Jesus, no, no, may it never be. That's not going to be the, I'm ready to die with you, Jesus. And Jesus, just filled with compassion, looks at Peter and says, Peter, you're going to deny me tonight. And sure enough, just a few hours later, Jesus is arrested by an angry mob. The disciples' world is just turned upside down, inside out. Uncertainty abounds, and in the midst of that, Peter publicly denies even knowing Jesus. Multiple times. And to multiple people. And we hear that story, we read that in the Gospels, and we can be tempted to think, Peter, why could you do that? How does that happen? I mean, you, you walked on water with Jesus. You, you heard him teach. You were there for the Sermon on the Mount, Peter. Peter, you, you saw him do miracles. You watched him raise the dead. How could you deny him? And the reason that Peter denied Jesus is because he did not fully understand yet what it meant to be born again. Just like you and I struggle to understand what it means to be born again again. So what does it mean for us to be born again? Well, to help us illustrate this, I want to do a little drawing with you. So uh, find a sheet of paper and take it out. And the first thing I'll have you do is put a horizontal line just right across the sheet of paper. And then over here on the right-hand side, I want you to write God. And so God is over here in all of his holiness, in all of his goodness, in all of his glory. And then on the other side of this line, I want you to draw yourself. And the reason that I'm having you draw you over here is because you and I have been separated from God. And we've been separated from God because of this thing in our life called sin. All of us have it. And sin is something that we can often misunderstand. Sin basically is stepping outside of God's plan and what God has called us to do. But sin is not just breaking some rules. Sin is a rebellion against God. Because, see, God has our best in mind. God wants us to live a full and abundant life. And so he's told us how to live our lives. And when we choose to step outside of that, essentially what we're saying to God is, God, we know better how to live our life. God, I know better how to live my life than you know. And so I'm going to follow my ways and trust me and not trust you. And in that regard, sin is very offensive to God. But it's also a problem for us because God is life. And by definition, anything outside of life is death. And that's what happens with sin. Sin brings death. In fact, maybe you've heard this phrase before. It comes from Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. That just means the consequences of sin is death. But you already know this. I mean, you and I experience this all the time. If you're a parent and your child lies to you and you catch that child in a lie, something dies. 
not the kid. What dies is a little bit of trust between you and your child. Or if you've ever cheated somebody or cheated at something, and you got away with it, nobody knows that you did it, but you know, a little bit of your own self-respect dies. Because sin causes things to die. And if we end our time here on earth in sin, separated from God, we'll remain that way for eternity. But here's the good news. Not only is God life, God is also love. And that's why there's the rest of the passage from that verse. It's that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life, which is good news through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so what God did is in love, he came in the person of Jesus. And he went to the cross to take on the punishment for our sins. He took the wages upon himself and paid it himself with his own blood. Jesus came and he lived the perfect human life. He lived the life you and I could not live and he died the death that you and I should have died. And in so doing, he gives to us this exchange. And the exchange is that we give him control over our life. We're not going to trust ourselves anymore. We're just going to trust in him. And he takes our death and gives to us new life. And we choose to follow him and no longer ourselves. And when that happens, in that moment, you are born again. And that's a term, or, or a term that we would use in theology, is at this moment you have been justified by faith, that you have experienced justification. That's a legal term. It just means that God now looks at you as if you have never sinned. And when you have been justified, you are now reconciled to God. That means you're part of his family, and you get in on the family inheritance that Peter was talking about. And we experience that in a moment we call glorification. And glorification, we haven't experienced yet. But when we leave this earth, either through Christ coming back or, or us dying and being with Jesus, it's in that moment we come into the fullness of God's glory. And that is something that you and I have to look forward to, that there is coming a day when we'll be in glory with God, experiencing his full presence, no more sin, no more death, no more virus, and we just get to experience all that God originally intended for us. It is going to be incredible. And we long for that day. But the question is what happens in between when we've said yes to Jesus and we go to be with God in glory? And the author of Hebrews tells us what happens in this in-between time. In Hebrews 10, 14, where the author writes, for by one sacrifice he, that's meaning Jesus, has made perfect forever. That's justification. You have been made perfect and declared perfect forever because of Jesus. Have been made perfect forever those who are Look at this phrase, being made holy. So this in-between time is a time that we would say theologically is a time of sanctification. That we're being made holy and it is right here. It's right here in the sanctification process that often you and I misunderstand what it means to be born again. Because it's right here we're tempted to take back control. It's right here that you and I are tempted to try to do it on our own. We look at this and we think, okay, God's here in his glory and he went to the cross for me and he justified me and so he gains me access to glory. Now it's my job to try to live up to that or prove to God that I was worth it by being so good and we can't do it. 
think that's what Peter's problem was. He tried so hard to impress Jesus and he just kept falling short. And there are some of you who are right on the edge of, of just giving up faith because you feel like you're just exhausted in the midst of this season. It feels like you're never getting better. You're never getting there. In fact, some of you may have already given up faith. And you're listening to this message trying to figure out if there's a way back for you. Or some of you look at the life of believers and you don't see them living any different and they don't seem to have the, the hope that we often speak about and you wonder what's going on and it's because right here they have misunderstood what it means to be born again. And see, Peter eventually figured it out. It was after Jesus' death and his resurrection that he started to understand more fully what this was all about, which is why he used a phrase in verse 3 that often you and I skip right over when it talks about our new birth. Let's look again at verse 3. It says that we've been given new birth, yes, into that inheritance that's in heaven, but also new birth into a living hope. You and I were born again into a living hope. And when Peter writes living hope there, he doesn't mean wishful thinking. He's not talking about, you know, I, I, I really, you know, it'd be great if this ever happened someday. No, no, he is talking about a confidence that he has. The image that I want to give to you is one of a rope. And that rope is tied to something secure. And even though you can't see where it is, you can give it a tug and know that there is something certain on the other side. That's what Peter is writing to us about. Several years ago, my dad and brother and I had the opportunity to go scuba diving in the Florida Keys. And near Key Largo, there's a dive site called the Spiegel Grove. It's an old ship that's been sunk so you can dive on it. And it rests in about 85, 90 feet of water. And the day we dove on the Spiegel Grove, there was a really bad current. This dive site's known for notorious currents. And so the only way to get down from the boat at the surface down to the wreck and to enjoy the dive was to use something called a mooring line. Now, a mooring line is a big piece of rope that is anchored into the bottom of the sea, and then it goes up to the surface where boats can uh, tie onto it, and you can use that rope to get yourself down to the dive site. Most dive sites have them uh, out in the ocean, and normally a mooring line looks something like this. This is a photo I took a couple years ago, very different dive site, very different location. But you can see that from the mooring line, it goes all the way down to the site, and you can kind of tell where you're going. But the day we dove on the Spiegel Grove, the current was so bad that the visibility had been reduced to about 20 feet. And so once we got down the rope a little ways, say 30 feet under the water, you could no longer see the surface. But you couldn't yet see where you were going. All that we saw in either direction was this line fading from blue and into blue. Now I didn't take this picture, but here's an example of the mooring line, this is at the dive site of the Spiegel Grove, and you see here's the line, and it just disappears into nothing. And I have to tell you, it was one of the most intimidating things I have ever done, pulling myself hand over hand down deeper and deeper into endless blue. And the only reason that we kept going, even though the current was ripping and trying to pull us off the line, the only reason we kept going was because you could give it a tug and tell that there was something on the other side. And I want to suggest to you that our living hope is just like that. That our hope 
is anchored in what Jesus has done for us on the cross. When he justified us, he gave you and I new names. He declared things about us that now are our identity that are now true. And even though we don't maybe fully experience them or we don't feel that way, God's word says it is true. And it's anchored on the other side into glory. What we have to look forward to, the fulfillment of all of that. And even though we can't see glory yet, we can give it a tug and it becomes our living hope. And in the midst of a culture that is trying to sweep us away, we can hold fast to that living hope and give it a tug. Practically, what does that mean for us? Well, I think it means this. I think it means that we remind ourselves about what's true, even if we don't experience it or don't feel it. One of the things about me is that I struggle with being a people pleaser. And that's something you have to be really careful about. And so often in my spiritual life, I'm confessing that to God, I'm coming to God about that, or trying to work that through with God. And one of the things that has been most helpful for me hasn't been to just try harder. I mean, that's like kind of letting go of the mooring line and trying to swim your way down to the dive site against the current. You're probably not going to get there on your own. In fact, and if you do, you're going to be so exhausted you won't be able to do anything. But instead, I've been trying to hang on to my living hope. And I've been doing that through prayer. There's some paths near my home. And early in the morning, I love to get up and just walk and talk with God. And one of the things I'll talk with him about is glory. I'll be like, God, what's it going to be like? What's nature going to be like with no sin and, and no death? And what are our relationships going to be like when there, there's none of that junk between people anymore? God, what are you and I going to talk about when we're in glory? And I just, I just imagine myself being in glory and then I'm reminded what Scripture says is true, is that because of Jesus, I am now fully accepted by God. And in glory, I'm going to experience that. We're going to walk together and talk together. And I'm not there yet, but, but that is going to be true. And, and if the God of the universe wants to spend time with me and has accepted me, then it really doesn't matter what other people say about me. And so that means that I can hang on to that living hope and give glory a tug and bring a little bit of glory into the here and now. And it changes me. I respond differently to those text messages I get or I show up differently to a meeting or that phone call goes in a different way because I've reminded myself of what is true even if I don't feel it to be true. And I think Peter did the same thing. In fact, I'm convinced that Peter did the same thing. Because when we get to the book of Acts, that's the story of the early church that happens after the Gospels, we see a different Peter. We see a Peter that has been holding fast to his living hope. In fact, there's this amazing story in Acts 12. Peter has recently been thrown into prison because there's a man by the name of King Herod that's trying to score political points by having Christians arrested and killed and Peter is like the prize and so he throws him in prison and Acts 12 picks up the story here. It says this, it says, the night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains 
and sentries stood guard at the entrances. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in his cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrist. What I love about this passage is the detail that Luke, the author, gives to us. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't sleep well at night, not soundly at least. And when my seven-year-old daughter walks in our bedroom, I wake up like this. And I have to believe that if an angel of the Lord showed up in my bedroom, I would be up. And so here's Peter, bound between two guards on a musty jail cell floor the night before his probable trial and execution. And the dude is sleeping so soundly that Luke tells us that the angel has to strike him on the side to get his attention, to get him to wake up. Why? Because Peter, is, watch this, is sleeping like a rock. He's finally believed what Jesus declared about him to be true. He took hold of his living hope. And it changed who Peter was. God has given you a new name if you have said yes to Jesus. Do you know what those new names are? They are many, but I have just a sampling of those new names for us here. And I want to encourage you to believe who you are if you have said yes to Jesus. One of the new names that Jesus gave you is that you are forgiven. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter your past. It doesn't matter how much guilt you feel. Jesus says that if you've accepted him, you have been forgiven. That is your new name. Another name that he gives to us is righteous. Now, we may not feel righteous. In fact, I've lived with myself my entire life, so I know all the stuff, and you have done the same thing. But what Jesus says is that because of what he's done, not because of what we've done, we're now seen as having the righteousness of God. That is the name that has been given to you by him. You need to believe it. Or how about this one, that we now are at peace with God. That's what God says about you. Your name is at peace with God. No more striving between you and God because of what Jesus has done for you. Or this, no matter what your biological family has done to you or how they have treated you, you are a child of God. You are part of God's family. He adopted you. You are also chosen. Doesn't matter how you've been rejected here on earth or by how many different people, the God of creation has chosen you by name to be a recipient of his love and his grace. That is your new name, and you need to believe it. So I want to encourage you this week to take one of those names, one of those names, and hold on to it, and to take it into the moments where you may not feel that way. To, to grab hold of that name that, that even though I might be rejected by others, maybe I've lost my job, maybe I've been, I've been mistreated by my family or my friends, or I'm feeling so alone, that the God of the creation says, regardless of what your circumstances, if you have said yes to my son Jesus, you are chosen. And hold on to that and dream a little bit about what it's going to be like when you experience the fullness of that name in glory. 
And as you hold on to that living hope, you're going to begin to believe that name is true. Now, all those names and so many more are true if you've said yes to Jesus. And if you've not yet come to that place in your life where you have trusted in Christ, then you are not yet born again, but you can be. And I want to tell you that God is offering to you those names today. And you can receive those names. And you do that by accepting Jesus. It's what we just drew a few moments ago. It's acknowledging to him that that you want to turn from trusting in yourself and trusting completely in him. And that you believe that he died to take the punishment for your sins, but that he rose again on the third day. And when he rose again, he came to new life so you can come to new life. And that is the good news of our hope. So if you're ready to take that step, maybe you've never taken that step and today's the day you're ready. Or maybe you're not sure if you've ever taken that step. Then in just a moment, I'm going to pray a prayer. I'll invite you to pray along with me. The words don't matter. It's the heart that matters. But if you're ready to take that step, there's something else I'd ask you to do. And it's to go to this website, wooddale.org slash yes. And on this website, there's just a very simple form that you just, just lets us here at the church know that you said yes. And the reason I want you to do that isn't so we track numbers. That's not why we're doing it. The reason we do this is because we want to come alongside you and help you take hold of that living hope. And we do that through a faith starter kit. And when you fill that out, we'll send to you a virtual faith starter kit to help you take hold of that living hope that Jesus offers to you. So, if you want to say yes to Jesus, then now is your opportunity. And I want to invite you to pray silently with me as I pray aloud. Wherever you are, all of our venues, all of our locations, would you bow your heads with me? Father God, I acknowledge to you that I am a sinner. Father, that I have done things that I knew were wrong, but I did them anyway. And Father, I acknowledge that I have been trusting myself and not you. Father, I want to turn away from that life of sin. Father, I want to accept the gift that Jesus gives to me. I want to take on the new name that he is offering to me today. And Father, I acknowledge that I believe he died on the cross for my sins and was risen on the third day so that I too may rise again by trusting in him. And I choose to follow you the rest of my days. In Jesus' name, amen. And I want you to know that if you just prayed that prayer, you became a child of God. Welcome to the family. Now, as you take hold of that living hope, whether you prayed that prayer just right now or you prayed that prayer years and years ago, as you go throughout this week and you try to hold fast to that living hope, you're going to have a question. And that question is, what happens when I believe who I am? but I'm not yet becoming it. And Peter answers that question. And we're going to take a look at his answer next week. We'll see you then.